Welcome to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Coming up on this week's program, the latest Franklin and Marshall College poll shows Pennsylvania voters support legal abortion and adult use marijuana. Also on the program, what can we learn about health equity? What are Pennsylvanians thinking about issues like the economy, abortion, and legalization of marijuana? Polls from Franklin and Marshall College several times a year help to crystallize opinions on those issues and what voters are saying about candidates for office. The February 2024 poll released late last week shows voters are still pessimistic about the economy and the direction of the state, maybe a little more positive than just a few months ago. With us on The Spark today to break down the numbers and what they mean is Burwood Yost, director of the Floyd Institute for Public Policy at the Center for Opinion Research at FNM. Burwood Yost, welcome to the program. Hey, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So let's get right into it. Almost half the registered voters you surveyed said the state is heading in the wrong direction. Now, that's fewer people than said that in your poll in October. So is this a glass half-empty, half-full kind of situation? They're still optimistic, but less pessimistic. Yeah, that's how I characterized it in the summary we wrote. Um, You know, the the number who said the state's off on the wrong track went from 55% to 48% which is an improvement, still kind of negative. Actually, the number of people who said they weren't sure went up from 10 to 15% as well. So, you know, maybe we're, as national surveys have shown in a transition period where the news is getting better, and maybe those kinds of things are catching up to how people feel or people are rethinking their feelings. Um, You know, the other thing that goes along with that too, and we'll talk about sort of the most important problem question is the number of people who say that the biggest problem facing the state is government and politicians tick down a little bit. Um, and I, you know, I, that has to relate in some ways to how they feel about the direction of the state. Um, but a bigger part of that is definitely how they feel about the economy and their personal financial circumstances. You know, that government question always, when I say question, or the answer to the question, the biggest problem, and the answer comes back as government or politicians. That one has always perplexed me as to, okay, what do the voters mean? Do they just have a negative opinion of politicians, of the government? Yeah, that's what it means. They're not happy with the way the government doesn't work. Um, A lot of people would like to see government solve problems with less uh, polarization and animosity. Um, and that's why those numbers went up. Um, and whenever there's conflict between the parties, like during a budget stalemate or things like that, you see those numbers increase. Um, but that was virtually, you know, prior to the 1990s, that was virtually uh, never mentioned as a problem. But it has been um, in recent, you know, in, a, in about the last decade or so, it started becoming a problem. And ever since the Tea Party has increased as a major concern. Mm. But the economy is still rated as the most important issue to Pennsylvania registered voters. What did you find out? Well, you know, Scott, it's it's interesting because uh, we still see about a quarter of voters say that's the biggest problem. Um, and the reason they're talking about the economy as being a problem. We asked people who said they're worse off than a year ago um, financially. And basically it's inflation. People will say the cost of living is just too high. Now you have a small number of people who say something like taxes or 
Biden administration policies, but that's a generally small number. Most people say, you know, it's 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 the cost of li- living, cost of food specifically was mentioned frequently as a concern for people. Um, so so these economic uh, feelings are are still persuasive, pervasive, but they're not as common as they were even uh, a year or so ago. So again, getting back to this are there glimmers of optimism? Um, you know, there are fewer people who are talking about the economy as a problem than, say, in September, October of 2022 at the time of the last midterm election. And so, you know, their like attitudes may, may be changing um, as they get generally more positive, but I still wouldn't characterize them as positive. Mm. I, you know, it's not just your poll, but uh, several that I've seen, almost every one that I've seen this question or a similar question being asked, Americans point to inflation as right there at the top. Now, you know, if you look at the numbers that uh, the government puts out, the economic numbers, it says that we are in a strong economy. Inflation has moderated, but prices aren't at what they were before the pandemic. Wages are up over the rate of inflation. Unemployment is way down. The economy is growing at a healthy clip. Stock market is setting records, and interest rates may come down this year. But yet, Pennsylvanians and Americans still have a perception that we are in a bad economy. And I mean, that's what they call it, a bad economy. Why? Well, I think it takes time for um, things to catch up, the economic reality Uh, to catch up with people's feelings about the way things are going. I mean, let's face it, the Census Bureau released numbers in December for 2022, and median household income in the state was down from the prior year, Scott. So, I mean, I think there is some substantive reality to the feelings that many voters had. Um, But as we said, those, those feelings are starting to change, and I think in part because there's been so much good economic, positive economic news We'll see if it continues. But the question that you ask specifically, and you ask this uh, every poll that you do, uh, that you ask about personal experiences and the situations that the voters are off. You know, basically, the, the, the question is specifically, are you worse off than you were a year ago? What do you expect a year from now? And it's still... You know, the highest percentage of of uh, those who were surveyed say they were worse off than a year ago, right? Yeah, that's true, but that's coming down. Um, but here's the key indicator, I think. The question about how you're going to be next year has certainly changed. The number of people who say they expect to be worse off dropped nearly 10 points from our last poll in October. So now when you look at the numbers, Almost two-thirds of Pennsylvanians say they expect to be better off or about the same next year financially as they are now. And I think that's the roots of the optimism. Hmm. You know, it, it really one, – one of the things that always I, I ask myself when I you know, see the results of the poll and – you know, you've used the word feelings a couple times. And, you know, perception is another big word here, is yep. that uh, – People base their opinions on what they are experiencing themselves, not necessarily what those numbers are in that are in the news every day, right? 
I, uh, undoubtedly. Look, who can make sense of what economists are telling us? I mean, you know, they don't, as the old saying goes, economists have predicted nine of the last three recessions, right? I mean, uh, it, that stuff is confusing. And people take their cues from the things that they see around them. And the reality is that in tw- at least in 2022, median household income went down in this state, according to the Census Bureau. That's a lived reality. And if it's harder to pay for food, um, you feel that. And, you you know, gas prices are coming down, but they're still above what they were, say, after the pandemic. Right. And I think that's part of this, too, Scott. You know, we're still adjusting, adjusting to a post-pandemic world. And I still I think there's there's still some adjustments that we're going through. You know, what what's the new normal look like? And um, you know, so all of that is part of it. And, and I'm, you know, people are paying attention to every bit of economic news and every every forecast. They're living their lives. Hmm. So let's turn to some other issues other than the economy, Burwood. Uh, recreational marijuana, almost two thirds support making it legal, right? Yeah, we see a, a lot of folks um, supporting that. And that has been the case for some time. Um, attitudes towards that, a majority of citizens started believing that should be legal um, probably about a decade ago. And right now we see, you know, around 60% who say that it should be. Mm. And and that has been going up. I mean, when did it really make the turn? Do you know? Well, uh, acceptance of medical marijuana was first. um, And then as other states began to legalize it, it became more sort of, well, why not here? Um, So, I, you know, it's been it's been at the state level as the states have started to legalize marijuana that more people here have said we should do it, too. An issue that shows 90 percent of Pennsylvanians now it's divided between uh, in all cases and in certain circumstances. But Pennsylvanians overwhelmingly support keeping abortion legal with some caveats. Right. Yeah. They do. And and that's been true. Again, you know, there are these triggering events that change attitudes, right? The drive attitude change. The Dobbs decision, you know, prior to that, it was probably about 15, 16 percent, 20 percent, maybe in a given poll that might have said abortion should always be illegal. Um, that's down to around 10 percent now. Um, and that's where it's pretty much stayed since then. It's very rare when you have an issue that ninety uh, percent they don't totally agree. You, it's broken down by fifty percent and forty percent on in all circumstances and in certain circumstances. But it's rare when you have that kind of agreement on an issue, isn't it? Well, if you listen to politicians, it might seem that way. <laughs> but there are a lot of things a lot of people agree on, Scott. I mean, when we ask questions about government reform. Um, most people favor changing the way we run our elections, the way we draw our congressional districts. I mean, I could give you a long list of things that lots of people agree on. We just don't talk about them much. You know, that's a that's a great point, though. But I mean, you even hear some members of Congress say that, you know, the stories we read, we hear about we, we hear about. The partisanship. We hear about the divide. We hear about the issues that uh, uh, there is a, a lot of disagreement, and the loudest voices come from those. But you know, you you often hear members of Congress say there are a lot more issues that we agree on that the public doesn't know. 
That's correct. And, um, you know, if you if you dive into any kind of survey work, you'll see that there are general perceptions of things that a majority of citizens agree on. Um, now, the, the, the way that you translate those into policy, of course, that's contentious. I'm not suggesting it's not. But but this is this goes back to the conversation we had earlier, Scott. Why are people frustrated with politicians? Mm-hmm. Because people understand that there are many things that they and their fellow uh, citizens agree on, and they just don't get fixed, and they don't understand why. All right, so or maybe they do understand why, but they don't like the answer. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Is there an issue that historically, when you are doing your poll, that most people agree on that doesn't translate into policy? A minimum wage increase, mm. right? I think 60% of people would favor a $15 minimum wage last time we checked. Where's that going? Mm. And right? I mean, I, I, how many people favor having an independent redistricting commission? Large portions, right? Um, I, I, if, if you gave me enough time, I could spend 30 minutes giving you a list of stuff that um, 55 to 65% of people or more agree on. You know, that sounds like a column, Burwood, or (laughs) uh, a whole poll in itself. Yes, yes. Perhaps (laughs) I'll do that. (laughs) All right. So, you know, you ask a series of unique questions about how Pennsylvania voters would describe different people. And this goes back to the polarization. And... This is. I just. I, I found that fascinating because most people agree just what we were talking about and how they view other people, except on just a few issues like religion, for example. But describe why you put that series of questions and how would you describe those questions? So um, those are are basically what we would call values questions, and so we were trying to assess people's. Um, sort of feelings about universalism, you know, principles that um, like, you know, every every person in the world should be treated equally. That's sort of a universalist principle versus maybe tradition. Um, So something like religious belief is important to me. And so we were just, frankly, the reason I want to ask it is ask questions about values is because I'm trying to figure out how people are going to vote and what they want in terms of certain issues and how those underlying values may drive those things. I think the key for me to this election is the 20% of of Pennsylvanians who say they do not like Joe Biden and do not like Donald Trump. They have an unfavorable opinion of both candidates. How do we figure out what they're going to do? Well, if I can understand their values, maybe I can have a sense of where they'll end up at the end of the election. Um, and that's a, that is a column that'll be coming. <laughs> so there was an opportunity to uh, promote a little bit. But, you know, you asked that question uh, also about the candidates. I mean, the, the series of questions that I just mentioned, the value questions, but then you also ask in reference or comparing where the candidates stand, the presidential candidates stand, with some of those issues. I mean, here's one that, uh, I mean, just to summarize, 
Biden does better with best understanding concerns of ordinary Americans, closest to the views on abortion and same-sex marriage. Character and good judgment needed to be a good president, is most honest and trustworthy. Voters think Trump is better equipped to handle the economy, would be a better commander-in-chief, and isn't too old to serve another term, even though he's only three years uh, younger than, than Joe Biden. Okay, so... What does or what do those uh, answers, those results say to you? Well, um, in terms of the issue space, and this gets back to where we started talking about the economy. In terms of the issue space, Scott, I think uh, Republicans and Donald Trump currently have an advantage. Now, if the optimism that we mentioned earlier um, continues, that gap may change. On the other hand, we're seeing... And in fact, I should just say that those numbers have stayed pretty consistent since our last poll on those issues. What has started to change are the issues of character and honesty. Um, And Joe Biden continues to grow his advantage there against Donald Trump. I have to believe some of these legal issues. um, And in fact, having a contested primary where his Republican opponent is now attacking him on some of these attributes has given President Biden advantage. And so, you know, when I step back and look at this poll in its entirety and think about, all right, if people become a little more optimistic about the economy, that shrinks that issue advantage um, or the issue deficit for President Biden. At the same time, if the character advantages grow, this may mean that he's better positioned than what his uh, job approval rating would suggest. I mean, frankly, his job approval rating is so bad, it's hard to believe that he's even with Donald Trump in this race. I mean, he is just not, uh, not his performance is not rated highly at all by Pennsylvania voters. Mm. And age is another issue where there's a disparity. As I said, Trump is just three years younger. But let's face it, Trump, well, Trump has much it, more energy on uh, when he's out in, in public than what Joe Biden does. Yeah, as the old song goes, anger is an energy. Um, But uh, I would add that 43 percent of voters to this poll and to our October poll said they're both too old to serve another term. And this gets to the point about 20 percent of voters, one in five, just not wild about either candidate. Um, And that's why we asked the presidential feelings questions, which we haven't talked about, you know, would be hopeful or worried. Would you be calm or agitated? Would you be happy or sad if Biden or Trump were elected? And what's interesting for those questions is that um, President Trump, former President Trump, elicits more emotional responses. Responses are, uh, for President Biden are more kind of in the middle. Um, and, and so, you know, we were just trying to document that sort of the emotional content of their of their campaigns and their candidacies. Well, in about the 90 seconds we have left, I mean, one of the things that we're kind of leading up, we buried the lead if you talk about uh, who's leading in the polls. We're still 10 months away from the November election, but uh, what did uh, the polls show as far as who voters support, who they would vote for right now? Well, it's it's a dead heat, realistically. Um, and so when you look at the numbers, it's like 43 percent, 42 percent for Trump and Biden. Um, If you add in third party candidates, Biden has a slight advantage, but still within the margin of error. What this election is going to boil down to, Scott, is 
which third party candidates and how many of them are on the ballot, because that's going to determine what we talked about earlier, where some of those 20 percent of voters who don't like either candidate end up, whether they stay home. You know, what alternatives do they have right now? Biden seems to have an advantage with the candidates we tested, but, you know, it's going to depend on which ones actually make it to the ballot. Yeah. Robert Kennedy Jr. polling at uh, what, 7 percent, 8 percent? Eight percent. Yeah, eight percent, which is significant when you think about a third party candidate, Jill Stein, at about two percent. Burwood Yost from Franklin Marshall College. Want to thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Good to talk to you as always. Coming up on the second half of the Spark Weekly, health equity. How much of a difference is there between Americans? You're listening to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to The Spark. I'm Marquise Lupton. Healthcare equity is the thought that every person deserves to live a healthy life. However, due to social, economic, and environmental factors, not everyone has access to healthcare and proper healthcare education. This has been the mission of Union Community Care to ensure that everyone can access affordable healthcare. And today on The Spark Weekly, I speak with James Reichenbach, who is the Chief Community Impact Officer of Union Community Care Lancaster, and also Dr. Sharice Hamblin, who is an OBG at Penn Medicine. All right, so we're just going to jump into things right here. So my um, first question here, kind of a big one, um, but it's also very important as well. So what role does integrating body, mind, and heart play in achieving healthcare equity? And uh, James, we'll start with you, and, and then we'll go to you, Dr. Hamblin. Great. Well, thank you again for allowing me to, to take part today. Sincerely appreciate it. Um, you know, at Union, we really look at, you know, mind, body, heart, spirit, community, and so many more things as being a critical part of, of total health care for a person. And uh, we try to achieve those goals um, in, in, as, in as equitable a way as possible, mm. um, really thinking about the, the locations where we provide the types of care that we do, how many services we offer, um, how often we get out into the community to meet people where they are. Um, you know, I think one of the lessons that we learned during COVID was that no matter how many brick and mortar locations you have, there are still people that are not being reached. Yeah. And I think in terms of really, really um, thinking through what equity means to us as an organization, it's not trying to encourage people to come to us, but really looking how can we get to them in um in every way possible. So certainly the decisions we make every day um, lead us down the path of trying to be a more equitable organization. We always have more we can do. Mm. Um, but uh, as I had mentioned uh, recently, um, our leader, uh, Lisa Jones, our president and CEO, really makes equity the forefront of everything we mm. talk about. Um, even the, the most serious discussions we have to the ones that would be considered the smallest decisions we have to make in in that entire range, uh, the focus is on how to be an organization that sparks equity and really, really reaches out to that community. And um, for for you, Dr. Hamblin, uh, what role does integrating body, mind, and heart play in achieving healthcare equity? Well, I appreciate the question, and I think my perspective is slightly different, mm. right? As when I think about why did I become a physician? Uh, some things that come to mind are 
you know, being nosy, liking to be in charge and, and then wanting to help people. So a lot of times students will say, you know, their first thing is I want to help people. There's lots and lots of ways that you can help people. But I think that the desire to become a physician, your mind is thinking in a certain way about what role you want to play and how you want to do things. And then you get down that, you know, 10 year journey and you realize that what you do in a patient interaction really only impact has about a 20% mm-hmm. impact on, on the patient wow. that, you know, patients live and play and work in communities and in environments and those environments and those settings really impact the health outcomes. And so to me, integrating mind, body, spirit, heart, all of these things are essential to being a healthcare person uh, because if you are solely focused on, let me write you this prescription, you will have missed the whole the whole point. Is the medical field moving more towards this this equitable healthcare, or have you seen it kind of backslide here? I, mean, I think that we there's the ideals, right? The ideals mm-hmm. of medicine, and then there's the reality. Um, part of part of racial health equity, right? Understanding that differences that we see in outcomes in racial groups has to do with racism. Mm. That's an essential piece of understanding. And I think a lot of times organizations will shy away from the big R. It's like, oh, it's a nasty word. Um, You know, I kind of, I try to, if I don't use that word 10 times a day, uh, I haven't been, (laughs) I haven't been doing the right things or having the right conversations. Um, When I think about uh, just how important it is to name a thing that allows us to recognize what we're up against. And then in order to fight racism, we have to be comfortable advantaging black people and other people of color. Mm. Uh, And so when we take that lens, uh, we take that approach, then we can do what union does every day with like coming to say, who am I serving? Who am I here for? And then prioritizing that population and doing what's necessary to meet the needs to have the desired effects that we want to have. Mm, the the big R word you said, and and I think that that is that is a big fear uh, for for a lot of um, folks of color that that are are thinking about you know racist doctors. You know that is that is something that just you know sends sends a cold cold chill down my spine because you would hope and 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 believe that that your doctor and your healthcare uh, pr- provider would have um, an equitable lens. So with this equitable lens uh, here, we're going to go uh, back to you, James. Uh, what role uh, do patient advocates play in promoting equity within the health healthcare system? Sure. So I think um, to Dr. Hamblin's uh, very important point, I think it certainly is a work in progress in terms of kind of patient advocacy at that level. Mm. Um Speaking from unions perspective specifically, as a federally qualified health center, um, we are required to have at least 51% of our board of directors be patients that are active within our organization. Oh, wow. So not only are we getting feedback from our patients, but we are literally a patient-led organization. Mm -hmm. Um, That certainly provides some significant advantages um, just in terms of having um, direct contact with people who are being served by us and direct feedback 
Um, it's so valuable to be able to hear from patients every day, but particularly to be able to have those patients make the decisions that will ultimately affect tens of thousands of other patients down the road, I think is critical. So from a micro perspective, Union Community Care certainly sees the benefit of patient advocacy um, in leading the charge to a more equitable organization, so much so, again, that um, that they lead from the top, which is excellent and, uh, again, provides us feedback that is uh, critically important. Mm. And um, Dr. Hamblin, uh, for yourself, um, when I think about these these, these patient advocates, um, um, patients are waiting. Your business comes into mind. Uh, so, so I'm not going to force you to talk about patients are waiting, uh, but uh, what role do you think patient advocates play in promoting equity within healthcare systems? Patient advocates are so important. And if you think about it, right, advocacy, you're speaking up, you're speaking up and you're speaking out. Mm -hmm. And so when you are in the role as a patient, you're not going to be at your best mm. because you're vulnerable. And so even a person who in their daily life is able to do, you know, all of the things or, you know, to point out all of the things, I think when, when you are in the patient role, you should be able to be comfortable and you should be able to be, uh, to take that moment and be vulnerable, mm -hmm. not be sitting there fearful, like I have to now kind of uh, figure out the right thing or figure out if this person is treating me well. Um, when I think about racism, I think again, that you ha we have to understand that racism acts at many levels. Mm -hmm. And so when I said, you know, patients, they live, they work, they play in communities. And guess what? Racism is, at, is, a, is a force in, in all of those areas. Right. It's not just interpersonal. And so I think about that, the idea of like, well, maybe my doctor is racist. You know, I think doctors are good. They want to help and, you know, is first do no harm. Mm. And so the idea of, you know, this kind of bad actor and I'm going to see someone who, you know, really doesn't want to see me. I think that that's going to be few and far between mm -hmm. but what really on the interpersonal level is kind of like what is our mind trained to? And a lot of this unconscious bias, right? And we're mm. implicit bias. And so that's on the individual level. When we think about on a societal level, say we say where we work, well, you have sometimes where there's organizations and you work and everyone uh, who is a person of color is on the lowest pay, pay grade. And as you go up, there's less and less diversity. And so that's how we understand like kind of racism on a, on a, you know, in a, in a, working environment level mm -hmm. when we understand racism on a community level which may talk about segregated housing or or school funding etc and so there are many um there are many levels that uh, racism can be at play and i think that the important uh thing as far as achieving health equity is that we have to understand how uh specific to racial health equity how there are there are levels at which we have to kind of see and understand that Beyond the patient experience, it is also how uh, our patients come to us through uh, through the different scenarios that we're we're all living through. Um, and with specific to patients are waiting, you think about advocacy again. When you're the patient, whether I, I'm a doctor, whether I'm a school teacher, or I'm a recently immigrated person, you know, to to a country. When I'm in a healthcare environment, I am going to be vulnerable. And uh, having advocates at all levels, the doctor, the nurse, the front office person, 
I think that there's many ways to speak up and to be helpful uh, for someone who is not able to use their voice as they might usually be able to. Uh, and I think that that's, there's an advocacy role that we can all play. Mm. There's an advocacy role we can all play. I have this thing on the spark where I like to say, put that on a shirt. And that is <laughs> that is certainly something that I definitely uh, would love to see on a shirt. And uh, James, I do want to um, start off with you uh, with with this next uh, question. Now, the last segment we, we talked about uh, patient advocacy um, and, and what it looks like. And you all have actually partnered with Patients Are Waiting uh, for for this uh, Health Equity Music Festival that has been going on for the last uh, five weeks here. My my first question here is, why did you all decide to partner up with this venture? Sure. Great question. Thank you. Um, patients are waiting, uh, really, in our opinion here at Union, is a perfect example of uh, on-the-ground, impactful patient advocacy, meeting people where they are, um, making healthcare accessible, making conversations about healthcare accessible and dare I say fun and entertaining and family friendly. Um, the importance of being able to have these conversations about healthcare in the communities where people live, work and play just makes so much of a difference. Um, you know, we can have um, symposiums or meetups or patient-centered uh, gatherings at our locations, which are also important as well. But there's just something about connecting with people where they are with music that's enjoyable, with with camaraderie and family friendly opportunities to gather amongst your community and hear about things that are important to everybody. Um, and I think it also reinforces the notion from Union's perspective that partnering with patients are waiting allows us to provide information on our services and allows people to feel seen. They're mm. actually seen in their own community. We are coming to them. And I think there's something about that that allows us as union, as an organization, to reiterate to people that they matter most. Mm. They should lead their health care. We should be coming to them. And I think when we look at patients are waiting and in the, in, in the, the festival itself, it's just such a perfect delivery system to do that. And um, we were thrilled and honored to partner. And um, the feedback has been outstanding, frankly. Patients love it. The community's enjoying it. And that's really what we're about here is promoting that. I will tell you this, James. I think that you're uh, in my notes because I was I was definitely going to uh, bring up about um, shaping one's own individual health care um, and and what what that would look like. I'm, I'm going to put a pin in it because uh, I'm not going to ask that just yet because uh, I want to ask uh, Dr. Hamblin about uh, the Health Equity Music Festival and and the kind of response uh, that that you have received uh, thus far during this current season of of, of the Health Equity Music Festival. Well, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Um, it's really tiring, but <laughs> um, tiring in the best possible way. Mm. I think that one of the things that I learned in the pandemic, I, a lot of um, a lot of medicine and a career in medicine is like delayed gratification. You know, you put off this thing so that you can kind of put your head down and into your books. Um, I grew up in church. I was in the church every weekend, all weekend. Uh, <laughs> so I know about a revival. Ah. <laughs> and then, you know, you think about like, I, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of experiences throughout life that I have had that are, you know, positive 
um, enjoyable. And then I think with COVID, when we were doing, you know, pop-up vaccinations and things like that, there was so much fear mm. and it was so strange to be in this very fear-inducing season of life and then have something so powerful in the pop-up vaccine events where it was like such a release, such a, um invigorating moment of being together when you had been afraid and even the, <clears throat> the the amount of community organizing that it took to make some of these events happen, mm. you realized how much power and strength our own communities have. And so, you know, whether it was, you know, ladies at, you know, Brightside Opportunity Center or Brightside Baptist Church or the people at the NAACP or different community groups that were just ready and willing and able to come together with the health equity music festival. This is our third year doing this. And, you know, it really did come out of what was the experience we had with vaccine clinics and what made them so enjoyable and what made, you know, so many people willing to just give of their time and energy. Uh, and how do we take some of the best of that? What were we missing? Uh, and trying to or say, how can we build on it further? And I think that that is kind of the idea behind the music festival was really saying, look, kicking off the new year, lots of people say new year, new you. Mm -hmm. You don't need a new you. You may need a healthier you. You may benefit, you know, but you are wonderful just as you are. Now, how can we connect, you know, the dots for some some of the things that are uh, it's an opportunity to kind of realign your actions and your decisions with your own priorities um really putting again the person at the center so uh some of the things with where we are now as we've iterated on this process are you know really saying union you understand us we understand you all right what does this look like in planning together uh also saying like how do we uh what's necessary to be available and how do we add other people who are interested on board, but like, how do we kind of say, let's pull our strengths uh, and then, and then go from there. And, and that's, it's really been a wonderful, wonderful ride. Um, going back to you, James, what opportunities exist for individuals to actively participate in shaping their own healthcare experiences? Sure. So at Union, we really, really um, are leaning in as much as we can in terms of giving uh patients options and not just options, but again, leading from the front and telling us what they need. Um, that includes a lot of different things. For example, uh, just tomorrow, we are getting our first mobile medical unit delivered here to our location. So wow. that was something that patients um, asked for during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Why can't we have uh, mobile clinics that are on the move that can come to our communities, come to our events that are basically fully built out exam rooms that can do anything that can be done in a clinic. So we have that. Um, we are increasing our telehealth and virtual options hmm. to make sure that patients, if they want the convenience of having health care from home or from their car, or from wherever it's most convenient for them to do that. And along those lines, we're really, um, when we talk about equity, um, Elisa has given us a term, or Elisa Jones, our president, um, this concept of techquity, of really looking at technology and not just assuming that because we think everybody has a smartphone now, that all virtual technologies in the healthcare realm are going to work for everybody. Mm -hmm. So we're really working hard to try to gather data and, and really find out what is, what is technology 
what are the pros and the cons and how does it enhance equity and how does it is it a detriment to equity just based on how it's deployed so um those are just a few of the things there are many many things that we're doing internally uh but again i think what it comes down to for us as an organization is just each decision we make is led by what do our patients need what do they want what are they telling us and that's how we're going to provide that as opposed to um, a perspective of, well, we have the healthcare experts. We know what's best for you. We'll go ahead and give that to you. Number one, I think that's flawed logic. I don't think that provides the best care. I'm certainly not a doctor, but that's just anecdotally. Mm. Um, but number two, I think to Dr. Hamlet's point earlier, the data just doesn't back it up. I mean, yeah. the data backs up when you meet people where they are, when you let them lead their healthcare journey, when you let them tell you what they need and where they need it, and, and you use your professional expertise to guide them on your journey, I think your outcomes are just so much better. Healthcare the right way. I love it. I'm here for it. Put that on a hashtag. I would like to thank you both uh, for joining me on The Spark. Uh, this, this has been great. The information uh, that you gave our listeners today, uh, I, I am sure they picked up what y'all put down. Uh, so before uh, we we head on out, uh, for anyone that is listening, uh, James, if they wanted to uh, get in contact uh, with Union to Community Care, possibly become a patient, what would be the um, best way to get, get in contact? Uh, the best way would be uh, going to our website at unioncommunitycare.org, all one word. I'll spell it how it sounds, unioncommunitycare.org. We are taking new patients. Our doors are open. Medical, dental, behavioral health, social services, pharmacy, on and on and on it goes, dietitian. If you if you have something that you want to do to enhance your health care experience, we're here to serve And on behalf of Scott Lamar and myself, I want to thank you for joining us this Sunday on The Spark Weekly. And you can listen to other episodes of The Spark and The Spark Weekly anywhere you listen and download your podcast. Thank you for making us a part of your day.